The last time we were together and in the book of Genesis, uh, the man and the woman were in paradise. So here we are and something's happened, right? Genesis chapter one, we were introduced to God. And what we saw was a magnificent and powerful God who would just speak and things would come into being. And everything that he would make each day, he would look at it and he would say, that's good. Of course, when we got to the end of his creation, at the end of, of day six, he had just created human beings, different from the rest of creation, made in his image. And then God would say, this is very good. Then when we saw the man and the woman as God had created them to live, what did we see in Genesis chapter two? People who were living lives with a right relationship with God. God was walking and talking with them. We get this sense that that's the way we were meant to be. People who know God and know his presence and know his strength. Uh, people who are in right relationship with the world. Uh, we've been given an opportunity to have our lives count. It matters that we live. We have a, an opportunity to care for the creation that God had made. To fill the earth and to make sure that that which was very good would remain very good. And we were in right relationship with people. Uh, the man no longer alone, but now a relationship where you can make a commitment and that relationship could grow so that when we end uh, the, the Genesis chapter 2, everything is paradise. They were in the Garden of Eden. So what went wrong? What went wrong? Because we know that now that we gather here, 21st century, Southern California, uh, so many people in our world might believe in, in their hearts that there is a God. But for so many people, God seems to be so far away. Uh, even, even though we read that we were given this ability to care for this world, to make sure that what God had said was very good remains very good. We look at our world and see that it's been so abused. We see so many signs of a lack of care. And even though God made us to be able to live in lasting and intimate and growing relationships with one another, everywhere I go in the world, what I find are, are broken relationships and lacks of trust. We, we end Genesis chapter 2. We look at that and we say, that's how life is supposed to be. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with the world. Right relationship with one another. And now we look at our world as it is and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, if you read the sociologists of the late 19th and early 20th century, you find that so many of them back in that time period, back in that time period, we're saying that the world is getting to be better and better and that people are getting to be better and better. And with more education, uh, better lighting, <laughs> more, more, more work, uh, you know, survival of the fittest and, and, and natural selection, that eventually we're going to be in a world where all of the evils of this world are absolutely gone. There will be a, a, a complete rejection of, of poverty and, and hunger. The world is getting to be better and better and better. Uh, Darwinian evolution applied to biology was applied to human psychology and we were told we are getting to be, be as better people and then came World War I and then came World War II and then we began to see that among the most educated people in the entire world 
there were these awful concentration camps with the worst kind of brutality imaginable. And then, of course, came other wars. And we saw, as I had the opportunity to see when I was in Phnom Penh just last November, the awful genocide that happened not just in Western Europe, but also in Asia there under the regime of Pol Pot. I had the opportunity to go to the Genocide Museum. And while I walked through that one place, that one museum that's been built in just one of the many, many places where beautiful people made in the image of God had been treated so brutally when some have estimated that as much as one-third of the population was wiped out by their own people in that one period of time. And as I walked through that genocide museum with some of the family members who were still alive, showing me the pictures of their loved ones and telling me the stories about how they had been killed, I went out and I just sat down and I said, who could possibly think that this world and governments and the people of this world are, are better, less brutal, more caring than they were a thousand years ago. Who could possibly think that sort of thing? Of course, this last week, I, I don't know if I'm sure most of you did or many of you did, I listened to the, our own president's State of the Union address, and then I've been listening to the bantering that goes back and forth afterwards. And I keep hearing that, well, we can't really do these sorts of things because the other group is not collaborating with us. And then I, I began to realize that if, if they really began to collaborate, then one group might succeed, which means in the next election they will win and this group will be out of power. So if they're going to stay in power, they better not collaborate. So we never collaborate. It's always the other person's fault. And it frustrates us. And we blame it all on Washington, don't we? I'll tell you, I've been through so many elections now that I'm at the age that I'm in now, and it's always the same thing. The problem is Washington. And so we need to get outsiders to come into Washington. Well, let me tell you, the problem is not Washington. It's the fact that people are in Washington. <laughs> And so the moment an outsider goes back into Washington, that person becomes that person again, and we just can't figure it out. The same thing happens in the church. How many times have I heard it? I, I want to find this perfect church. But we know deep down inside that if we find the perfect church, the moment you and I walk in, it's not perfect anymore. You know that's true. You know that that is true. Uh, the, the problem is, is deep down in our hearts. Don't you know when you read Genesis 2 and 3 that if God were to offer to any one of us today the opportunity on a plate, the opportunity to be in paradise, we would mess it up in a moment. Don't, don't you know that? And yet in spite of this flaw that is inside our hearts, because that's, that's what seems to be, no matter where you go, this, this flaw that is inside all of our human hearts, at the same time, I find among all of us a longing that things will be better. And a longing that our own lives will be better. I, I imagine that's what brings you to church this morning. I imagine you didn't come saying, I hope I go to church and go out of there being a more rotten person than when I walked in. I think one of the things that draws us as church is this deep longing we have for, for tomorrow to be different from yesterday. And the older I get, the more I, I see this. 
um, the, the longing I have that, that the world that I can leave behind and that I'll have an effect in will be a better place for my children than the one that I came into. And now that I even have grandchildren, this, this deep, deep longing that, that the world that we have for our grandchildren will be better than the world that we have experienced. How do we understand this? On the one side, the, the, this flaw that whenever we're given the opportunity to do what is right and good, we, we, we mess it up. And at the same time, this, this longing to be better and, and to do better and to bring about that which is good. And today we are going to see what the Bible's explanation for us. Beginnings. I've been saying it. The, this book of Genesis, the opening chapter, helps us to understand who God is and helps us to understand our world. And I'll tell you, we're going to begin to see today how it helps us to understand ourselves. How it helps us. What I, I want you to see that even though... Some scholars have looked at Genesis 3 and immediately, because of the talking snake and all these things, they say it's all just myth. I am convinced that when we look at this story the way that it is told, that even the one who's the most outspoken cynic about the Bible will know it resonates with what is true. Because what happened in the lives of Adam and Eve, where they had everything going for them, and the greatest possible future imaginable. And they throw it all away for a piece of fruit. <laughs> they throw it all away for a piece of fruit. That we look at ourselves when we see the same thing. What I want us to do as your pastor, what I want each one of us to do is to, to look at this again and to see how it is that so many times when we long that our lives will be different, that when that temptation comes... We give in to the same old things over and over again. I want us to become aware of it so that perhaps we might hear God in a fresh way and go from this place with a recommitment that through his grace and through his power, our lives will be more of what he made them to be than when we came in. You ready to look at it? I see several phases of what happened here. First of all, I want us to think about the atmosphere in which the temptation was able to thrive. There was an atmosphere that was created there by, by the serpent, and, and the Bible and other places lets us know that Satan, the adversary, was, was speaking through this one. There was an atmosphere that he was able to create that, that started making the woman open to disobeying God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? I was listening to a message that was done recently by Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor back at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in Manhattan. And what he says is, he read this and I think he's right. He says what he sees here is an attitude that permeates Manhattan where he lives. And I've begun to think it might even affect us minimally here in Southern California, too. <laughs> it's the attitude that this serpent seems to be fostering in, in the way the question is asked, the tone of voice. I was trying to get it across. Did God really say something like that? What I want us to see is this, that in many ways the fall of the entire human race began, it began, not so much with a specific action as with the sowing of an attitude. 
really, says the serpent. He doesn't really make an argument against what God has said. Instead, what he does, he just mocks it. He makes fun of what God has said. He wants Eve to begin to think that what God has said is laughable. It's the kind of thing I've seen so often in, in the academy when matters of our personal faith and Christian faith comes up and you try, have you, I don't know if you try to do, you try to speak for something that the Bible talks about and, and, and the attitude you feel is, really? You still believe that, huh? Or maybe, maybe after this week, really? Your pastor really thinks there's something we can learn out of Genesis 1 through 3. I didn't know anybody was alive who thought, thought like that. What an out-of-date, uninformed person he must be. You you don't think like that, do you? I mean, do you see what I'm getting at here? An atmosphere is being developed in which any person who who might see truth in what God's Word has said begins to think, oh, maybe no sophisticated, rational person would hold to this sort of thing. See, my, my point is this, that often our lack of confidence in, in, in what God says and in the person of God, our lack of confidence begins not so much with, with a piece of good evidence or, or a solid intellectual argument, but it begins that, that we, be, when we're in an atmosphere in which people are just scoffing at something that's in the Bible and making us think, well, it, it must be absurd. Now, I know that this happens in a lot of places. I, I'm guessing that it can happen if you're the only Christian in your home. You might have faced this. I'm guessing that it happens maybe in places of work or in the community when you talk about it. But perhaps because I have been in what I call the academy and in areas of higher education for so much of my own life, it just seems to run rampant there. And I understand why. In, in good schools, uh, we pursue knowledge and, and we should. But what that sometimes leads to is that we begin to think that we have more knowledge than actually we, we have uh, in a good school, current ideas about the world are, are nurtured. We, we, we wrestle with them. But what often happens is we start to sort of scoff at the, at the wisdom of the ages. And especially when it comes to matters of faith and religion. And sadly, I'll, I'll have to admit this, sometimes all of this is driven and fueled by the fact that those of us who stand where I'm standing now can sometimes say such dumb things. And I'm sure that sometimes I do. I mean, but I hear sometimes what just makes people scoff. Oh, that tragedy happened in that place because, you know, something happened back there. So it's just God's direct judgment on, on those people. And what happens is everybody scoffs. And uh, a professor then will say something that hits at the heart of what we, we believe. And, w- and we begin to think that in that atmosphere, when we try to challenge anything they might say it's just going to be it's just going to be laughed at and they're going to call us fundies and we don't want to be that we, we don't want to be thought of to be intellectually naive now, now hear me out sometimes we wrestle with our faith because there are some real issues that are happening that we cannot understand but so often and i think it's often more often We wrestle with our faith not because there's something being said that is a solid question that goes against the truth of Scripture, but so often it happens simply because it's been made to be laughable and we don't want to stand up for what God has said. 
Tim Keller in his message would say this, for every one real argument I have to address against the Christian faith, I get 99 sneers. Because that's what he calls this attitude, an attitude of sneering. And of course, what is happening is, this is hitting at our pride. Because we don't want to be thought of as uneducated and and unsophisticated. We don't want to be put, lumped into that unthinking crowd. Now, just look at Eve. Her first response in verses 2 and 3 seems to be a defense of God. She seems to start well. The woman said to the serpent in verse 2, Oh, wait a minute, we may eat fruit from the trees. You're wrong about that in the garden. It's not that we can't eat any of them. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So good up to now, right? And you must not touch it or you will die. Wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Do you notice there that Eve distorts what God has said? He had ruled off one tree... But he had not said, you must not touch it. She's making it bigger than it was. So I pull back and I I say, why did she add that? A little short speech. Why did she add that? And there's only one way I can understand it. She was resentful of any rules. She didn't like any sort of restrictions. She wanted to be able to do what she wanted to do. And this irritated her (laughs) that, that there was this restriction on this one. I can't even touch that one. I began to think, I was going to just criticize teenagers. Sadly, I began to think, the more I tried to do that, I thought, oh man, I can still see this in myself. But I'm going to criticize teenagers because we usually do about this one. It's so often, whenever in your home, you try to set up one rule. For example, sure, you can go out this evening, but a curfew, you've got to be in by... 11 o'clock. I'll make it midnight just so that I'll seem like a very tolerant person. You have to be in by midnight. But perhaps her friends don't have a curfew or won't admit that they do. And so what happens? Oh, the complaint. Even though you have freedom to do all sorts of things, the complaint, you don't let me do anything. I, I can't go anywhere. Well, of course that's not true. But what it is is that frustration inside that we want to be able to control the whole of our lives. And so here, God had given them freedom in that garden to discover and to explore and to do so much, and he had roped it off one thing. And Eve is resentful of this. We can't even touch it. Well, I'll tell you, the serpent saw an opening here in her pride, and he goes after it. Eve, you could be like God. No restrictions, no rules, no curfews. Do you see the point that I'm getting at? That so often when we know what is good and right and we even long for it, our lives are opened up to disobeying what we know is right and good simply because we are in an atmosphere, an atmosphere where it becomes laughable. Now second, I want us to think about the plan of attack that the evil one used that furthered this temptation. I call it the specific attack that furthers temptation in our lives. Look at verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's what I want you to notice here. There's so many things I wanted to talk about. I had about a 10-hour sermon today, but it won't be. (laughs) 
I want you to notice here that Satan does not go after the things that we might have expected him to go after. What am I getting at? He doesn't go after uh, the existence of God. Eve, you know that there isn't a God like this. Why, why didn't he go after that? Because Eve knew that God existed. <laughs> She'd been walking and talking with him there in the garden. And that would not have been a fruitful plan of attack. And let me tell you that even though we are in the 21st century world no, it, now, it still would not be a very fruitful plan of attack. And do you know why? Because there still are very few atheists in our world. In, in, in spite of the attempts by some in the world of philosophy, and especially many people in the world of politics, to try to further atheism in our world, you still have very few atheists in the world. It's an amazing thing that you go into places where after decades they were under totalitarianism and, and atheism in the former Soviet states, the moment that oppression was lifted, you found people still believed that there must be something greater than themselves. And the very same thing is happening now in places like China, where after so much uh, time and governments trying to make them think that there is no, no God in this world, the moment that is lifted deep inside, people have this intuition they may not know God personally, but this intuition that there has to be more. So you see that that wouldn't be a very effective plan of attack. Do you see that? The other thing I want you to notice is that the evil one doesn't go after the holiness of God. He doesn't say, oh, Eve, a God that big who speaks and brings things into creation wouldn't care how you live. Why doesn't he go after that? Because she knew that it does matter to God how she lived. <laughs> he had said, listen, I want you to live well. I'm going to give you the opportunity and the ability to name so much of the rest of creation. I I'm going to give you the opportunity to care for the creation and have your life really count. There's only one thing I'm going to rope off here. And that is, don't eat of this tree. She knew that it mattered to God how she lived. And I'll tell you, I find the same thing when I talk with people, that they have a notion that if there is indeed a God, then probably the way we live matters. That evil matters. And then when we, when we engage in it, probably that evil is someday going to be judged. And at least they hope that goodness will be rewarded. There is this sense. So, you know, that also wouldn't be a very fruitful plan of attack. So what does the evil one do? You're with me, aren't you? The plan of attack is to attack her idea that God is good. That God is good. Because basically when you read this, what he says is, Eve, you can't trust that God's way will be good for you. He starts sewing in. God doesn't really love you. God doesn't want the best for you. He's trying to keep the best from you by giving you this rule. And I'll tell you, that plan was a dagger that went straight into her heart. Um, in all of my years of, of pastoring and more, just my years of living, I have become convinced that most of the temptations that we feel come back to this issue. We have to ask ourselves whether God is good. Do you know that on Tuesday afternoons I meet with a group of our pastors, like, like Jeff Leo and others. We get together and we just open up the Bible and talk about it. And I made this point, 
And uh, one said, well, talk about that just a little. And I started trying to think about what I meant. I said, well, for example, um, we know with, with the resources that we have, our money and our time and our gifts, so many times we know a bit about how God would have us to use those things. <clears throat> and yet a temptation comes up to use it in another way. And so deep inside, you see what I'm getting? Deep inside, we say, I know this is how God would have me to use what he's given me. But oh boy, I would really like to use it this way. And we think that his way is going to keep us from something that's good. Or with pleasure. Sometimes we open up the Bible and we know that God has said that we are going to live better if we will be sexually faithful to our spouse in our marriage. And then the temptation comes up. Oh, but I think I'd be happier if I went onto that website, if I picked up this literature, if I was unfaithful in this way. I, know, I, I can't imagine that I would be happier if I did it God's way. We begin to question the goodness of God. Maybe I'll take one that's a little less... Sometimes when we have a grudge, we're really angry with someone. Um, and we read the Bible uh, in which God says, my responsibility is to repay. I'm going to deal with evil. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Trust me to do this. And so we read that and we know it's true. But I'm telling you, we begin to think he's not, he's not doing his job very well. He's certainly not doing it as fast as I, I'll have to help God out. I'm not going to be happy until I say or do this. How can I possibly love my enemy? I was continuing to try to think about that. And as I was talking with the other pastors on Tuesday, suddenly into my mind came something that, that happened when I first became president at, at the university back in Chicago. And after I shared it, uh, Pastor Annie McLaren, our junior high pastor, said, Greg, you just have to share that with the church. And I said, I don't want to share that with the church. <laughs> and she said, you have to. Pretty much I feel that she's holding me accountable this morning. So I'll at least tell you about it. It's long enough to go. So well, anyway, it happens on and on here. But I'll, I'll tell you. When I first, I'd been a pastor for 17 years. And when I first left that to go to the university, to this very complex organization, you know, multi-million dollars of trying to run a, a business, I had a lot of questions about my ability to do that, though I didn't want everybody to know my own questions about that. And we also faced some terrible, terrible financial times those first three or four years. Uh, and remember, th this wasn't in the midst of financial crisis. This was in the mid-90s when it was going well for everybody else, just not for us. <laughs> and then I looked at things and I, I just thought that there are... God, there, there are things about the school that I just think have to change. For example, in our undergraduate school, I felt like we were admitting some students who had no possibility of succeeding either academically or spiritually in a Christian school. But we needed them to come. Any of you in education, especially as a president, you know why we needed their tuition dollars. <laughs> but I said, we can't admit them. We're not going to be a Christian school. This can't work. So we didn't admit them. And you know what happened? Um, the people that I thought we should admit weren't applying. And the people who were applying, I said we shouldn't admit. And so the finances got worse and worse and worse. 
And then with all of this combining together, the difficulty of understanding the whole academic process and all of this financial challenge, I was just completely filled with anxiety. I, I couldn't sleep at all. Chris, you, you remember, I, I, turning in bed, I'd jerk and wake up and I couldn't sleep at all. When Karush gave his testimony, it's just the sense that I had so deeply inside. And I, I felt like, I've got, I've got to deal with this. I'm the one I have to work harder. I've got to figure out more. I've got to strategize. I, I've got to take care of this myself. There was a passage of scripture, and last night after the service, I went up to uh, Karush And it's the same one that he came to in the book of Proverbs. I'll put it up here because maybe you need to see this as well. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. As a couple of my friends challenged me with what they saw happening in my life. It's this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him. And then he will make your path straight. I now see more clearly what I couldn't see when I was in the midst of it, or maybe I didn't want to, right? That, that what was going on was I was mostly afraid that I would fail. I'd walked into this 100-plus-year-old school, and suddenly when Waybright comes in, it falls apart. My ego was under attack. I thought that I had to make it succeed, and I just know that God turned back to me and said, Greg, I led you to this place. And when I've given you a stewardship, there's only one thing I expect of you, and it is to be found faithful. That means I can't just sit back and do nothing. I must use the mind and the gifts that God has given me and seek to make, under God's guidance, good judgments. But at the end of the day, that was not my calling but his, not my place but his. God's saying, you have to trust me. I wanted to be the one who had the understanding. And God says, don't lean on your own understanding. I wanted to be the one who made that path straight. But God says, now which one is going to do something good, you or me? It was a question of whether I trusted the goodness of God. This last December, when do you remember when the announcement was made? I don't know if I made it or Chuck made it, that we were almost a million dollars from where we should be and only a week left. I felt some of those same things happening. Maybe I can write a better letter. <laughs> All of these things. And do you know what the Lord said to me, and maybe to you as well, this is my church, not yours. Trust me to be good. Folks who have been entrusted to, to my care as your pastor, I want you to look at your life and those areas where you feel strong temptation. And I can well imagine that if you look at it carefully, bottom line, you're going to find out that the real issue at stake is, do you trust God to be good so that you will go his way rather than your own? Well, I better move on because third, we need at least to look at this act of the will that became the sin because we have a choice at that point. Look at verse 6. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. Then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Now, I'll tell you, 21st century people, I know you and I read this thing and immediately we ask, what was the big sin about this? I mean, eating a piece of fruit from a tree in the garden, what's so bad about that? Why would such a small thing lead to the downfall of the entire human race? 
And I'm going to just tell you this. You're going to look in vain in the Bible to try to find God giving us an explanation about why this was such a big deal. We try to find one. And in fact, in our Tuesday discussion, I was trying to help. It must be this or that. When finally someone would say, wait a minute, I don't think that's what's here. What we think like this. Oh, it must be because God knew that in their infancy and their uh, in paradise that they weren't mature enough to be able to handle this knowledge of good and evil. That must be what. But it doesn't say that, does it? Nor does it even have God saying, listen, trust me, I know what's going to happen. If you eat that apple, it's going to lead to untold misery and suffering and wars. Don't do it. He doesn't say that either. So, So what do we have? No explanation from God. Instead, the people who were there were simply called upon to acknowledge that God is God. And the God who is God has said, don't eat that one. And then they had to make a choice. Were they going to obey him or not? I began to see, again, I mean, I already knew this, (laughs) that what's happening in Genesis 3 is, is that God turns to us and says, I am God. And that means you are to obey me, not just when it makes sense to you. Because sometimes we say, yeah, I'll I'll follow God when I can see that and it makes sense to me. I am God. Are you going to obey me or not? And to even Adam, it was, I give you a choice. I give you a choice. Uh, Treat me as God and obey my word. Or the other choice, put yourself in the place of God and go your own way. There it is. It's pretty clear, isn't it? This is how I want you to live. I am God. Are you going to... Let me be God. Are you going to put something in the face of God, the first commandment? And usually we put ourselves there. And and they had a real choice. They were made in the image of God, weren't they? They, they, The ability to rule the universe. They, they, They knew what they were to do. God was saying to them, I made you. And and the world, and therefore in making you, I, I know how you're supposed to live. And I love you. I've given you a great world and the world that you're in, I created it for you. You didn't make it for yourself. So you're going to trust me or you're going to go your own way. Oh, yes, it might be that you can say the evil one created this atmosphere. Or you might say, well, he had a good plan of attack. But bottom line, you and I come here today that when these things are put on the table and a temptation comes to us, We can make a choice. And what I read in Genesis chapter 3 is a giving in without a battle. Masters of the universe, here's some fruit. Good. Chomp. I'll eat it. Adam, here, try this thing. Chomp. I'll eat it as well. No battle at all. And so many times it happens that way to us too. I've been trying to construct the way that I, I sense we often feel it. Temptation comes to us. You'll enjoy this. I will, we think. You want it. I do, we think. You can get away with it. I can, we think. You've been working hard. A lot of it you've been doing for God. You've been doing a lot of things in that garden. I have, we think. And it's a ridiculous rule anyway, isn't it? It is, we think. And we disobey.
I, was, I see Cliff and Joyce Penner. I'll bring you right into the sermon, Cliff and Joyce. I, I had lunch with uh, Cliff on Thursday. Cliff is a therapist here in our community. And if my son, Brandon, who was playing bass, I did to him what I always do to you, Brandon. I talk about the sermon. People who are with me during the week, they already know what I'm talking about. So uh, Cliff told me a, a story that I think is one of the most remarkably insightful stories about his own family that I've ever heard. And just brings this home. It was about uh, one of his granddaughters, his eight-year-old granddaughter named uh, Karen. She was back uh, in their home with uh, her mom, Julene. And after they had been watching these news stories about children being abducted. Uh, uh, Karen's mother, uh, Julene, was with her, put, tucking her into bed. And Karen then asked her mom, if I pray that God will make sure a man doesn't take me away in my sleep, will God definitely make sure it doesn't happen? Hard question, don't you think? And Julene answered, God wants us to ask for protection. He promises to be with us in all situations. But because sin has come into our world, bad things do sometimes happen, which is the reason we take precautions like locking our doors. But we know that God will be with us and and comfort us no matter what happens. Now, Jolene had been teaching Karen, her daughter, about uh, this matter of Adam and Eve in the garden when there was no sin and the effects of all of this and and how God had, had commanded her not to eat of this particular fruit and on and on and on she went. Um... Uh, but in spite of that, that, that they had given in. And the eight-year-old Karen said disgustedly, I can't believe that Eve would have eaten that apple. There were lots of other things in that garden to eat. I wouldn't have eaten it. So her mom sort of broadened the discussion to try to talk about ways that she might face this, like the way that she talks to and treats her brothers. Uh, you know how you're supposed to, and yet this is what happens. And then they went to bed. A few days later, um, Karen was with her mother, Julene, and just out of the blue, out of the blue, she turned to her and said, Mom, I was thinking about Adam and Eve, and I'm realizing that every single day I have to choose whether to eat the apple or not. just one of the most insightful applications of this text. It makes me see that when we read this, we know what God is getting at. And and brothers and sisters, what I want us to do as we come to the end of our service is to look at those areas of our lives where perhaps in recent days you have felt this kind of temptation. What is that apple that you are drawn to eat? Where are those places that you have known, God, you would have me to live this way and you've chosen to live that way? Where are the places that you go that when you're in those places, that temptation happens? I want us to be aware of the way the evil one continues to do his work in our lives so that we can be prepared to say, Father, by your grace and through your power, I will live for you. A final point before we have a moment of prayer. I'm just going to call it the hope in spite of all this temptation and the sin in our world. I want to bring this up because once I preached a sermon that didn't go to the hope at all. And Chris said never to do it again. So I'm never going to do it again. I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. They follow right on the heels of the sin. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Two things. First, sin makes us hide. Doesn't it? When we've engaged in something that's wrong, we we try to cover it up. We, we, We hope it doesn't really matter to God. We don't want those closest to us to know about that part of our lives. And when we cover things up, often we never deal with them. Uh, Truth sets free. It's it's light that opens up those places where we can get in and begin to clean them out. First, truth sets free. We hide. At the end of the day, then, we have to live, live these duplicitous lives where we keep trying to hide this stuff. So we hide, when we, and that's what happened to them. You see that, don't you? But second, praise God. God seeks. And we'll see next week. I, I believe in the depths of my being, God already knew that they had sinned, and he knew where they were. I mean, this is the God who spoke and everything came into being. God knew, and yet he hadn't written them off. He had not written them off. The God that we have come to worship here today is a God who is seeking after you and me, and he still is wanting to make something out of our lives that is very good. He has found a way to cast sin as far as east is is from the west. And he has said, I promise that if you will again trust me to be good and trust my son, Jesus Christ, I will forgive your sins and I will remake you so that you can experience paradise again. The culmination of this kind of a God is found in the coming of Jesus, who when asked, why did you come? He would say consistently the same thing. I'll tell you why the Son of Man has come. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I have come not for those who think that everything is fine. They're hiding what is not not fine. I have come for the sick so that they can be well. And I have come for those who know they are perishing. For whosoever will believe in me will not perish, but live everlasting life to his glory. Praise be to God. Amen.